Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Hello and welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. Today marks the second episode of the week in our two shows a week for the entire month of November. On Monday, we spoke with William Boyle, and today's special guest is William Kent Kruger. With 18 books, nine of which are New York Times bestsellers, along with no less than 17 award-winning short stories, Kent, my new pal Kruger, is a prolific writer. But even more, he's one heck of a nice guy with a kind spirit and profound insight on stories and the human condition. I'm confident you'll enjoy today's podcast and will enjoy his latest hit, Lightning Strike, a superb novel. Okay, let you and I get in the thriller zone. We're going to get to this gorgeous book, Lightning Strike, in just a moment, uh, Kent. And by the way, beautiful cover. Something about this is just so nostalgic and so reminiscent of childhood, and I I thoroughly enjoyed it. Good. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, here's something I never never get, a handwritten note. (laughs) This is delightfully old school, and I... For, for what, and I'm going to probably frame this. I, I, I'm a, I'm kind of a kook for some of the old uh, habits that we grew up with that seem to have fallen by the wayside. So that was a very nice touch. You know, it's just a, uh, just a card, David. Do you remember? <laughs> do you remember the old days when we actually wrote letters and they were, you know, pages long? Lost art. Lost art. Yeah, I, uh, I recall a day when I would, yeah, I would send pages of letters back and forth to the folks and you'd actually have to put a, what do they call it? A stamp on it. And you'd have to run it to a post office. <laughs> it's uh anyway. Yeah, hey, listen, yeah, let's, let's talk about uh, this. This book was so nostalgic and I'm probably going to burn that word out before I'm said and done with, but it's in uh, it, it, the, the feeling of nostalgia was so palpable for me that I, I now have to go back and read more of your books. Yeah. You know, I'm, um, you, what you interpret as nostalgia, I simply, uh, was trying to be true to the time. Yeah. And my, both my, uh, my recollection of the time, as well as the research that I did to remind myself about what things were like back then. Um, but no- nostalgia is just fine, as long as it doesn't, you know, um, veer into the maudlin. And, uh, and, I, and I'm hoping the book did not. No, and I was going to actually say, um, uh, I, I, made, uh, I make notes uh, when I'm reading a book, because there are certain things that hit me and I'm going to refer to this throughout, but this, there was such a solid sense of place and atmosphere for first of all, which is just the elegance of your writing, but it had enough detail and it's the smattering of nostalgia that it just pulled me into a place, a time and a place and a town that I felt like I'd been to before, uh, and, or someplace I wish I could revisit today. I think, and it's a, it's a compliment, by the way, there's no maudlin about it. Well, you know, so many, uh, of us grew up either in a small town or in a neighborhood that felt to us like a small town. 
Uh, and back in the day, we had a great deal, probably a great deal more freedom than our than we parents give their kids these days, yeah. uh, because we have a different awareness of the world and all of the all of the dangers that exist out there. But you know, when you grow up in a small town, uh, everybody knows everybody. You watch out for everybody, and you just don't think about the kinds of dangers we think of today. So I, you know, I, growing up in the time that Cork O'Connor was growing up, um, we had a great deal of freedom. And, you know, I get notes from people all the time telling me this this was my small town, which is exactly uh, where I grew up or saying, you know, I grew up in Philadelphia, but this was my neighborhood or whatever, you know. Yeah, I think it's a really fantastic compliment. And I, and, I, and having been raised yourself in Oregon and now living in Minnesota, it appears that a small town world may have always appealed to you, especially in this series is why why do you suppose that is? Well, there are already lots and lots of uh, fine crime writers who are writing about New York and L.A. and Chicago and the, the large metropolitan areas. Uh, I grew up in small towns and that's what I knew. And that's where my heart has, particularly Midwest small towns, that's where my heart has always been. I, I, I spent time, as you say, in Oregon in a small town. Um, so it's not difficult at all for me when I set a story in that location. Um, to fall back on my own memories of places and pull details that will make the place real, regardless of where your small town was. Small towns are very alike in many, many ways, and each is unique. And so the, um, the challenge is to find what's universal and also create it in such a way that it's unique as well. Yeah. And it's, so your mystery series set in, uh, the Northwoods of Minnesota and, uh, featuring Cork O'Connor. Now, the former sheriff of Tamarack County is a man of mixed heritage, and I had to find out how to pronounce this. So it's a part Irish and part, don't say it, Ojibwe, right? You're pretty good, Ojibwe. Ojibwe, Indian. Or the, the real term is Anishinaabe. Okay, because when I went back and did some research, I, I went back to your very first book and saw that pronunciation and I'm like is that a variation on that so it's just a more official term is that how that works well um the Anishinaabe culture is one that spans uh, a, a good deal of North America and under that umbrella are a number of subdivisions of Ojibwe, Odua, Cree, Menominee um, etc etc so the Ojibwe are part of the Anishinaabe, the Anishinaabe. Okay. So, so who or what was the inspiration for this character? And clarify for me, uh, in case I appear ignorant, why um, did he begin? Uh, the story seems to begin as he's a former sheriff. The series. Right? Got it. Yeah. So, uh, so the story starts this way. What was he before? So he was a, a sheriff before. But he is it more a private, more an investigator. Um, Cork O'Connor has, uh, until he stepped away from law enforcement, his background was entirely in law enforcement. He grew up in a um, in a background of Irish cops. Um, his father is out of Chicago. Um, Cork, when he decides to become a cop, goes back to Chicago to get his training. Uh, spent some time there before he decides to to go back to his hometown in Aurora begin his life there with his family. Um, so he begins, when I, when I opened Iron Lake, the first book in the series, 
he is no longer sheriff. He's lost his job because I wanted to bring Cork. I wanted to introduce Cork to readers at the lowest point in his life. <laughs> so he's, he's no longer a sheriff and he's trying to figure out, okay, if I'm not sheriff, who the hell am I? Um, but, but there was a reason I didn't want to make him a sheriff. And that's because I would have to do an enormous amount of research in law enforcement. <laughs> at that point in time, I was a little too lazy to do. And, uh, and so I didn't want to have to understand exactly how he was, he would have to proceed um, officially in order to solve an investigation. And if I made him a former sheriff, former law enforcement officer, you know, he could do whatever he wanted to. He knows what the law is, and then he could decide whether he wants to obey it or not. And that, I found that just uh, liberating. <laughs> <laughs> well, I so love your where did, where did Cork come from? Um, here's the, here's the, uh, the seed of Cork was here, honest to God. Long before I knew I was going to write a Cork O'Connor story, I just had in mind uh, a guy I wanted to write a story about. And in the beginning, all I knew about him, David, was that he was going to be the kind of guy who was so resilient that no matter how far life pushed him down, he would always bob back to the surface and his name would be Cork. Swear oh, to God, God, that's where that came from. You know, I told that to an audience not too long ago and some wise ass in the audience said, why didn't you just call him Bob? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that was the beginning for Cork. And then when I decided I was going to write stories set in the North Country of Minnesota um, and took a good look at Minnesota, Northern Minnesota, I realized you can't write a true story set in the North Country here without including the Ojibwe, the Anishinaabeg, as an element of the work because their influence is, up there is ubiquitous. It's powerful. It's everywhere. Um, so, uh, so I knew I was going to make him a man of mixed heritage. Because of that, but also because... You know, you know this as a fiction writer. What is it you're looking for to drive your story? It's conflict. Conflict, mm -hmm. what drives great stories? So when I looked up north, that's what I saw was conflict. Conflict in in that rugged north country that uh, that's every bit as uh, as challenging as you might imagine. Uh, conflict in the weather that we have up there, those bitter Minnesota weathers, winters that can, can actually kill you. Conflict in the cultures trying to live up there together and not always doing a good job of it. Um, and then when I thought about the whole issue of conflict, more specifically, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to create a character who, in who he is, would mirror the conflict of, of the two dominant cultures up there, white and Ojibwe. So I decided I was going to make him a man of mixed heritage at that point. Wow. I loved the Native American influence. And one place in particular, one of the characters, um, Sam Winter Moon, he describes how the spirits of his people often took a while uh, before finding their final place of peace. And beca perhaps because I was in such a reflective mode when I read this, I, I found myself finding comfort in that as it caused me to reflect on how my parents' memory and spirit seemed to have hung around. I've just recently lost my mother. I lost my father many years ago. And with them both now gone, I was thinking, I was kind of looking at them through Sam Winter Moon's eyes, if that makes any sense. And I thought, I realized that like my mom hung around for a while. She um, stayed in my dreams for quite a while. And, uh, and each time she looked a specific way, but she would start saying things in my dreams that would remind me that it's okay. I can go now. I can go now. And then the dream stopped and she, I felt there's a sense of peace. So just as a, an aside, it was such a, a poignant and powerful thing for me. And I, I, I love that native American influence. And I, 
I found myself saying to my, you know, why don't we have more of that sensibility? It's not a question. It's just kind of a statement of what I appreciated and part of the story. Oh, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not sure how to respond to that, except to say, you know, one of the things that I have always appreciated uh, in talking with my friends in the Ojibwe community is their uh, connection with um, with the spirit that flows through all creation. Right. And that's, that's a, a, a timeless, endless spirit. It has no beginning. It has no end. And, uh, and so they're aware of not just their connection with those from the past, but also their importance in connection with those who will come after them. Yeah, and, and part of the reason that moment felt maybe slightly awkward is that I don't, uh, I've been doing this a long time, and I sometimes don't want to come out with all the standard questions of so, because, uh, you know, I, I got to watch a few of your videos and hear some of your interviews, and uh, I, I hate to always just say that, ask the same questions that everybody else is asking. So I try to go at things in a slightly different way, and I try to um, react to them on an emotional level versus mm -hmm. just, hey, so uh, where did this cork fella come from, you know? <laughs> I appreciate that, David. Yeah, and, and because it's interesting, I, I want to really get to know you. And so before we even dig any deeper, uh, some of the side notes that I uh, read about you and, I, and it's from my curiosity corner. What's one thing you learned from these three different um, jobs that you've had, just to, so I can get to know Kent better? You have logging timber, working construction, and a freelance journalism. Can you think of one good takeaway from each of those that have helped form who you are as a writer? Yeah, logging timber, you don't want to do that. Uh, <laughs> It's a it's a a really tough job, and uh, the reason I stopped logging timber was I was sitting at lunch one day. This was in the mountains of southern Colorado, and I was looking down this hillside that we had just clear cut, and it broke my heart. And I decided I can't be a part of this, so I stopped logging. Um, loved construction because I loved the guys I work with worked with. Everyone I worked with in construction was like me; they were mark in time until they figured out who they were. Um, they all had uh, a, an idea of where they were going in their lives and were trying to figure out how to get there. So I worked with uh, um, another writer. I worked with a guy who, who was a fine artist. I worked with a guy who uh, went off to an ashram and uh, to study under a guru. And I mean, these were, these were not your typical construction workers. These were intelligent guys, fun to be with. And, uh, and that was part of the crew. The other part of the crew were the guys you would expect to be in construction. You know, they were working a job because uh, they hadn't finished high school or they just barely finished high school and they had already a family to support, kids to, to support. And, um, and so I, I came away with a great understanding of what it was like to have to meet those responsibilities, particularly when you're young. Um, and a great respect for the fact that they, this is what they were going to do. Yeah, uh, they'd made this commitment and they were going to stand by it. Um, so uh, so just a great, I guess, awareness of the broad, the broad spectrum of, of um, what it is to be human, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and from the freelance journalism, there's a job I didn't want to do again ever. 
<laughs> I wanted to write fiction, uh, you know, and so, uh, the, you know, I thought, well, I'll be a journalist for a while. <laughs> no, if you want to write fiction, write fiction. That's what I find to understand. <laughs> I was reading on your website about the only thing you've ever really wanted to do pretty much your whole life was to write fiction. So yeah. yeah right. Yeah. I've always wanted to be a storyteller. Yeah. And it comes through. I mean, I mean, 18 books, that's no joke. And what, um, I want to say actually there are 21 books, 18 oh. in the Cork O'Connor series and three standalones. Got it. Yes. All right. You're a step ahead of I'm, me here. I'm even more impressive than you thought. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so we got this tender land, ordinary grace, and the devil's bed. Those are the stands alone, and yeah. they have they have nothing to do with Cork O'Connor, right? Absolutely nothing, except in uh, in my seventeenth Cork O'Connor novel, I brought back the protagonist uh, from my thriller, The Devil's Bed, a guy named Bo Thorson, and he and because uh, over the years I've had a lot of people who love The Devil's Bed, and Bo Thorson is the protagonist there. He's a Secret Service agent. Um, ask, say they loved him and wanted him back. And so I finally found a way to get Cork and Bo to working together. Isn't that a- 18 it, years later. Yeah, isn't that a fun thing to do, uh, to find a character from your past that somebody says, whatever happened to him and can we get more of him? And you're like, hmm, yeah, let's dig him up. And do you see yeah. more of him coming around? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I brought him back made people happy, but I have no, at the moment at any rate, David, I have no plans to, uh, to go any further with both or but life is long. So who knows? Yeah. One thing also I, I picked up from you a couple of times and not to take the words out of your mouth, but you, people were asking you, could I pick up lightning strike and, uh, feel like I don't know, have to go back and read the other books. And you made a comment about, yeah, because it can be daunting to think to yourself, Oh, I've got to go back you know, 17, 16, 17 books to be able to get the gist of the story, but pretty brilliant to just write it as a, in a way, its own standalone. Brilliant. I, I like that characterization. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I wish I would say, could say it was uh, this brilliant idea, but actually I did it because my, uh, my agent has been nagging me for years, actually, to write a prequel to the series. Um, as you probably heard in the, the interview you listened to, um, across the course of the uh, 17 previous books in the series, I have often made reference to events and characters in Cork's life that were important in shaping him. And my agent for a long time has been saying, this is rich territory, you need to mine it. And, uh, and so finally, I, you know, I didn't have another idea for a Cork O'Connor story, so I thought, okay, what the hell, let's see what we can do with this. And, uh, and I was really glad that, uh, that she had directed me in that way, because I so enjoyed writing this uh, story um, in exploring who Cork was as a kid, although I, I kind of already knew that, sure. uh, but for the most, but, but really at heart, exploring the relationships that were important, the relationship Cork had with his father in particular, but also the relationship he had with his mother, the relationship his parents had with each other, Cork's relationship to all of these uh, Ojibwe elders who were so important as under, guiding his understanding of his, uh, that part of his cult, of his heritage. I uh, I noticed that you've written what uh, practically a, a book a year since you started. Uh, been something like twenty three years. Uh, you got a couple of gaps in there, and I'm just curious as a fellow writer, was that because you were searching for uh, an, an angle of a new story, or uh, took a break, or I mean, 
What's a... Yeah, um, I think there are just two places where there was more than a year gap between the books coming out. And one of those was the timing of my publisher. It was their decision. And, uh, and then the other one, I think the other gap occurred between Desolation Mountain and this tender land. I think there was more than a year there. And that's because um, I was supposed to have, let's see, or was it? No, 18, 19, it was between this tender land and uh, lightning strike was the next break. And, uh, and it was because of the, the pandemic. I was supposed to have a book out last year. Gotcha. Um, but the pandemic just sort of screwed everything up. And I got behind in deadline. And there, and we all decided, well, there's no point in bringing out a book uh, in the, that particular fall because everything is up in the air. It's all chaos and nobody's going to pay any attention. And so we delayed, I, de I delayed finishing the book and, uh, and its uh, publication was delayed. But typically, you know, and, and you know this in our genre of commercial speed in New York City is a book a year. That's pretty much, if they're going to promote you as, a, as try to be a big author, that's pretty much what's expected of you. And be because I write a series, it's not that difficult for me to deliver a book a year because I'm not starting from square one. Sure. I, I are, I've already established a cast of characters, uh, a setting, elements that readers anticipate will be in the story. So, um, so it's not, I have not found it difficult. Once I made the decision to give them a book a year, uh, I have not found that a difficult thing to, to carry through with. But you know, David, the first time, so Iron Lake took me, um, took me four years to write that was my first novel you know we all take a long time to write that first one because it's not under contract you can do anything you want to with it sure. took me four years for that one took me two years for the second novel it took me a year and a half for the third novel even though those pretty much came out almost a year apart mm -hmm. um and then my publisher called me out to new york city and set me down and they said kent you know, we want to promote you as a big author, but if we're going to do that, we have to be guaranteed that you'll give us a book a year. <laughs> you know, after I crapped my pants, I thought, um, <laughs> well, I can do this. I can do this. I want to be a big author. And and again, because of the reasons I've already explained, I haven't found it difficult to deliver what I, I consider a good manuscript every year. Sure. And excuse this if it's a tired question, uh, and especially with this volume of work. Is it is it like asking what your favorite, who your favorite child is, or do you have a personal favorite in that stack of books? Yeah, in the Corco Connor series, I actually yeah. have three or four of the of the eighteen novels that uh, that for me are special for a variety of reasons. Uh, uh, Iron Lake, of course, because it was my first child. Um, there's a book, several books later, called Thunder Bay, and I love that book because it's the backstory of Henry Malou. My, the ancient Ojibwe healer in my stories and how he became the wise guy that he is. Um, Sulphur Springs a little bit later because it was about a, a, a topic I thought was important to talk about the situation of the uh, refugees coming across our southern border. Uh, plus the research for that was um, among my favorite things. And, uh, and finally, uh, Lightning Strike, because I, I love the I love, I love it. I love yeah. everything I created for Cork as a kid. It's a, it's almost, it's a perfect book. It really is. It's just, it, there's not a, one thing I really respected about this and I've 
because I interview so many people and I read so many books and it's given, I was telling my wife this yesterday, I said, it's given me a really great and somewhat rapid education on the difference between what a fantastic writer is, a good writer and an okay writer. And it's one of those almost intangibles. But I recall hearing a conversation, one of my favorite authors back when he was alive, Elmore Leonard, he was saying something along the lines of take out all the parts that don't suck, but he, but to drill more delicately into that. He had this propensity to write the book and then go back and trim out every single thing that didn't propel the story forward or any any bit of fat or just, yeah, yeah. You, when, as a reader, you find yourself, yeah, yeah, I got that, keep going. And your book, this especially this book, is just like that. There's not... You know, you don't find yourself going, you know, that little bit of a glaze where you're like, can I just get through this page? No, every little piece, it's a long way of saying it's a great book. Okay, Kent, there yeah, you go. I loved, uh, I love Elmer Leonard because that really was one of the, you know, I heard him read his list of ten, the 10 rules, Elmer Leonard's 10 rules, and that was one of them. Uh, and basically he was saying, cut out the parts people are going to just skip through anyway. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I, I, I take that and I uh, have shifted it around a little my take on that is the stuff that people are just going to skim through, write it in such a way that they can't. They have to stay with it. So there are descriptions in there. Um, Elmer Leonard is really shy on descriptions. Mm -hmm. I write a fairly, um, you know, I write fairly descriptive prose because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in creating a profound sense of place. So there's a lot of sensual stuff that has to find itself uh, on the page. And so what you, the challenge then is to write it in such a way that readers actually enjoy that. Yeah. Um, and they're not just going to skip through. Oh, he's just, oh, he's talking about the pines again. He's talking about the clean lakes again or whatever. But to create it in such a way that it is so, so much a part of the fabric of the story that you have to stay with that too. Yeah, there's an elegance of it. It's a, it's like a fine tapestry and, uh, I noticed that, and a great way to do that is, I love dialogue, of course. So many books that I really enjoy are driven by dialogue. So if you're having dialogue and you just intersperse it, not to be too technical, but if you intersperse it with those descriptions, which you do very delicately, then I find it uh, exactly what you're saying, to your point of like, if, if maybe it's a repeated or a re-referenced uh, reference to mood or atmosphere it you you like it because it just kind of re-sparks it up like you you have certain way of talking about the milky way the milk <laughs> the, the moon would swallow up the milky way or something and i would stop and i'm like oh i gotta write that one down you know it's mutual admiration here um well i thank you i do appreciate it yeah and it's not and it's not you know not blowing it hot air up your skirt. Um, Cy, I, I have to ask this. So uh, classic question, what is next for Cork? I mean, will there, with this kind of a prolific library and such a, uh, an ease that you seem to have, I'm, I'm assuming there's, you have plenty more where that came from. Well, I'm, I have not yet tired of writing about Cork. I lo still love spending time with them. But you know, when you're uh, 18 uh, books 
uh, deep into a series, you're always looking for a way to keep it fresh for you and, keep, and hopefully keep it fresh for the readers. So across the course of the series, I've monkeyed with structure. I've monkeyed with, uh, with um, point of view. Um, I've monkeyed with time. I've done all kinds of things rather than just give you a straightforward telling of a story because that's what keeps me interested as a storyteller. So uh, I have um, just received from my editor his uh, suggested revisions for the next book in the Cork O'Connor series, uh, a book that will be called Fox Creek. It'll be out in probably August of next year. And, uh, and I decided to challenge myself again. So I wrote a story in present tense because I've never done that before. And I monkeyed with the... Uh, the way that the time sequencing of the uh, of the narrative, and just had a ball with it, and I, my my editor really loved it, uh, I really loved it, so I think it's going to work. So that's uh, that's what's next. Let's break that down a second, Kent, because uh, with twenty plus books, you said you've never done present tense before in all that time. No. So tell me how that happens for you just as though i have no clue it won't be hard <laughs> well you're always trying to figure out what, what's the best way to tell this particular story and every story i think um well i don't know about you but i have started stories in one particular way and thought no this isn't working let's try something else uh, until you say oh, okay this feels good this feels right i can do this story in this particular way uh, but i had never tried uh present tense before and because Fox Creek is really very much a thriller, I wanted the reader to be right there as things were happening. Um, so you have no idea whether, whether we're gonna come out okay in the end because there's no past tense to it. It's all happening right now. And uh, I probably, it'll be a while before I do another one in present tense, but I really enjoyed the exercise and I think it enhanced this particular story tremendously. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing like present tense to keep those pages turning. Yeah. Uh, impressive fact for my listeners that you won, uh, going back to Iron Lake, you won both the Barry and the Anthony for best first novel back in 99. I mean, what was that like to come out of the gate swinging for the fence and popping it over there into the field? Yeah, it was pretty nice. <laughs> <sighs> You know, every, uh, well, you know this, uh, with your very first book, um, you are stepping into a huge pond yeah. and, and you're trying to figure out how to make a ripple. Um, and I had a great deal of help in that with, uh, with those two particular awards. Would have helped if I'd won the Edgar as well, but that one went to my good friends, uh, Steve Hamilton. <laughs> um, so I, it, it was a terrific way to begin my uh, my writing career, well, it be actually the good things began before that because a, a bidding war broke out in New York City for the rights to Iron Lake, so that was pretty spectacular as well. Do you think those? You made this comment about daunting uh, this huge lake that we all step into, and by the way, you're you're talking to me as that as though I'm a, a I am a writer, but you're talking to me as though I have really vast experience, and I may have actually done something impressive, and I think I have yet to achieve that. But thank you anyway. Um, that is one thing that I think a lot of first time writers, second third time writers, uh, self published writers find particularly daunting especially all you have to do 
All you have to do is walk into a Barnes and Noble and, and look at the vast number of books and go, holy shit, I'll never be able to compete yeah. in this arena. How does one keep from letting that mindset or that thought commandeer their potential future? You know, um, I've had that same feeling, uh, David, walking into a Barnes and Noble and looking around and going, there are so many books, wonderful books already written. What the hell do I think I'm all about? Right. And you got to let go of that and go back. And I, this is what I tell young writers all the time, particularly those I hear bitching because their publisher isn't doing enough for them or they're not getting the recognition they feel they deserve or whatever, which is uh, poisoning their experience, I think. And, and I, what I do is I encourage them to go back. Why did you want to do this in the first place? Was it just to get rich and famous? Was it to have people marvel at you? Or is it because you wanted to write? You wanted to, to create the best story you could possibly create. And that was what was driving you. And, and did you? How do you feel about what you accomplished? And so I try to have them go back to what it was in the first place that sparked their desire to be a storyteller. That's amazing and beautiful and very poignant because you're right. So many, I think in this society of get rich quick and we get on TikTok or Instagram or whatever other social platform and we get any kind of recognition or notoriety or followers, we think, oh, you know, this is the path to success only to find out it's kind of a shallow pond. Um, but that's a great, that's a great challenge for us to to be in the present be in the moment enjoy the trip find out why it is you chose to do it um i mean it's very clear from your having listened to your conversations and read your books that um this is definitely a, a life's passion this is not a uh, a whim or a, a passing fancy and the fact that you have nine novels that are new york times bestsellers <laughs> doesn't suck <laughs> well that's always nice <laughs> what can i say god you know um that's those are good i love the accolades who wouldn't love the accolades sure. but if you rely on the accolades um it, it, you know you, you you risk what happens when they stop or if they stop does that mean you stop or do you go on because all of those the awards the sales um the, the the reviews all of that's beyond your control it really is the one thing that's in your control is writing the best damn story you can possibly write at that time sure have you can have you gotten to have you been in a place where you wrote a story and you're either you're 10 or 20 or thirty thousand words in name the number and all of a sudden you realize wow this isn't really what I thought it was, or it's not going anywhere, or, and do you just shelve it? <laughs> you haven't heard my story, have you? No. Well, I, here's the story I love telling when I'm asked to speak to writers, a writer's conference, a group of gathered writers. So um, my novel, Ordinary Grace, uh, one of my standalones, um, when I proposed that project to my publisher, they didn't want it. Uh, they called me out to New York City in kind of a panic and set me down and said, can't we only want Cork O'Connor novels from you? So I knew if I wrote this story, it was going to be a risky proposition, but it spoke to me in such a compelling way that I knew I had to write it. And across the course of the next three years, without a contract, I wrote the manuscript for Ordinary Grace. Um, when it was finished, 
I went ahead and sent it to my editor and Simon and Schuster, she fell in love with it. They published it and Ordinary Grace uh, just had this terrific reception, uh, won tons of awards when it came out. It, uh, it's been translated into more than two dozen foreign languages. So far, it's sold more than a million copies. And when my publishers saw how well that book was doing, boy, did they want another book just like it. So I signed a contract for a companion novel. They paid me a shitload of money. And, uh, and for the next two years, I worked on what I believed would be the companion novel to Ordinary Grace. David, that manuscript was contractually due to my publisher six years ago. Two months before the contractual deadline, uh, I set up a meeting in Chicago to talk to my agent about revisions to the piece because there were problems with it. I knew it, she knew it. Two days before we got together, I sent her a note saying, when we meet, I don't want to talk about how we revise this piece. I want to talk about how we keep it from being published. Because it wasn't the story I'd imagined it would be. I had no idea how to make it that story. And frankly, my heart wasn't in it. Uh, my publisher turned out to be really understanding. They said, fine, you don't owe us this manuscript. You don't have to give us this manuscript, but you still owe us a companion novel. Um, so here was what was going on. The expectations for that follow-up novel were enormous. And the whole time I was trying to write the piece, I was, I just felt crushed by the weight of all those expectations. Yeah. And the truth is when I was writing it, what I was trying to do was meet everybody else's expectations instead of writing the story that spoke to me from my heart. But as soon as all that weight got lifted off my shoulders and I felt free again, I saw so clearly the story I should have been writing, the story that did speak to me from my heart. And that became This Tender Land, which spent six months on the New York Times bestseller list. You know, so when I, when I talk to writers groups, one of the things that I try to encourage them to do is there are all kinds of voices out there telling you what you should write, what's hot, what will sell. Forget about those. The only voice you should be listening to is the one that speaks to you from your heart. Wow, there's a soundbite for you. <laughs> Holy moly. And you know what? It sounds, so, when you say it, it has this loft of grandiosity. And, and, and in reality, it's pretty simple. <clears throat> it seems pretty simple, but. You know, and I only say these things because that's been my experience. Yeah. It's so funny. How many times have we heard people, I've gone to Thriller Fest now only one time, but it was a life-changing experience. And you hear this phrase, writing to market. And I would feel that that could be a precipitous slope if you did that. And then if all of a sudden the market shifted on you, you could be chasing your tail a lot. What do you think about that? Well, if you're, if you're told to write what's hot now, by the time you finish your manuscript, it's not hot anymore. You know, for a while, every title had a girl in it. The girl who, the girl that, the girl, you know, this. Well, the, you don't see that many girls in the titles anymore. No. Uh, or everything was the Da Vinci Code, you know, or Da yeah. Vinci Code clone. That's not hot anymore. And so if you... Oh, I, did I just lose you? Okay, as you can see, we have a slight technical issue, so we'll take a short break, and we'll be back with more Kent Kruger on The Thriller Zone right after this. Hi, this is William Kent Kruger. Call me Kent. I am with David Temple on Thriller Zone, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I have. Thank you for your patience. You know, technology's a fickle little beast, isn't it? Well, yeah, you know, and, and during the pandemic and with all the various platforms we've all been using for this kind of thing, technical problems, you know, we've all gotten used to them. So yeah, yeah. no problem, no problem. Can you imagine uh, in this new era of communication, 
if all of a sudden uh, our internet, the way we know it, just went away? I, I mean, I know. But it is funny, you know, we've, we, we lived in this other world that was highly accessible in some ways, and then I would never, uh, very likely, not have the opportunity to spend time with you. And now in the COVID, in this technology, now it's commonplace. But yeah, if this went away. Well, communications, commerce, yeah. so much now takes place as a result of the internet. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, financial transactions, all of that stuff. We'd be, yeah. yeah. We'd be really, uh, let's see, screwed. I think yes. I could say that. <laughs> <laughs> On this show, you can actually say whatever you want, but yeah. So yeah, the, just before we got disconnected, we were talking about Ordinary Grace, which is, uh, that's a great story and a great reminder for why we write, right? Yeah. What kind of response have you gotten? Have you ever, I'm just curious, letters coming back from people who heard you speak and they said, wow, it, that was such a valid piece of advice. And Yeah, I have. I get lots of, um, yeah, lots of thanks for, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 71 years old. I've got a lot, of, a lot of life experience and good advice to dole out there. And uh, I, I get a nice response to it. Uh, I... I uh, found this fascinating and, and it shows a little bit of my ignorance. You have a degree in cultural anthropology and I, I wanted to know for those of us who don't know what that involves, what does that degree prepare you for? Well, uh, let's set the record straight. I never graduated. Okay, I did not fair have enough. a degree. Um, I left because I thought college was not teaching me what I needed to know in order to become a good storyteller. So I went out and log timber and work construction and sort of did the Hemingway version of an education. Um, and a, a cultural anthropology, that's just a, you know, I went to college and um, one of the classes I took uh, was a cultural anthropology course, just because I was, you know, trying to feel my way through what, what here interests me and boy, did that interest me. Yeah. Um, and what cultural anthropology is, is simply the study of uh, other cultures. And you can approach it from a lot of different, different sub uh, specialties, uh, but just generally uh, trying to understand how other cultures see the world, how they create their moral structures, the rules that guide them, um, what, are, what, what do they believe in terms of their spirituality? I mean, just fascinating stuff. Sure. And uh, and so when I decided I was going to write about the Ojibwe, I knew absolutely nothing about them, but that that background in cultural anthropology certainly prepared me for for the the excitement of uh, discovering who the who the Ojibwe are. Something I want to go back to that I referenced earlier, and I enjoyed uh, one of the encouraging messages at the end of the book as we start to wrap things up, and and it felt so universal. And it's this, it's not, uh, it's not about trying to understand what awaits us beyond this life. It's about enjoying the gift in this moment together now. Not only is that beautiful there, it, I had just finished having this conversation with my, <clears throat> with my wife today. And uh, as you know, because we, we got delayed on um, our hooking up, uh, we had recently learned that my nephew um, he's been very sick for some time and his, uh, time is very limited. And, uh, it just made me go, uh, 
you you got to grab all those moments like right now and stop worrying about the bullshit to be frank yeah well i'm glad i'm glad i'm glad i said something that uh that found a place in your heart yeah that's good to know thank you david yeah uh, as we wrap things up and leave it on a, a high note, um, I like to do a little rapid fire questions. Only got three of them for you. Okay. Um, if you were a sheriff in a small town like Aurora, how would you run the town? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably by the golden rule, uh, you know, you you treat people with respect. Um, you don't make any. Uh, any quick judgments and uh and you always give people the uh the benefit of the doubt that's awesome sounds like my dad right there <laughs> i'd probably make a terrible sheriff yeah but you know what if everybody in town had a smile on their face like you seem to always have be a nice place to live i'm sure if i were sheriff i wouldn't always have a smile on my face <laughs> let me tell you yeah uh question number two what's your secret to staying married to your beautiful wife for 50 years one word gratitude oh tell me about that um you know we've been married almost 50 years and uh and it took me a long time to learn that um that acknowledging the blessing and blessings that you get from your spouse goes a long way to making you both uh, understand uh, the beauty of what you share together. That is perfection. My wife's going to love hearing that because she'll like, see, see, yeah. <laughs> Last question. You've been asked by Stanford University, you'll like this, to address their graduating class with your pearls of wisdom as they venture out to their future life. What's one thing you'd like to tell them? You don't have to graduate from this place to, to be a success in life. That was a perfect tee up for you, wasn't it? <laughs> this has been awesome. Kent, I'm so, thank you for being patient with our technical issues. Um, thank you for the delay, but boy, this was worth all the wait. Are you, uh, you gonna be at any of the conferences, upcoming conferences in this next year? I never go to Thriller Fest, so I won't be there, but I do Left Coast Crime, one of my favorites. Uh, I'll do Baushikan next year as well. Uh, I will be a Thriller Fest. Uh, I'm trying to take this show there. Uh, I do want to do Bashacom. Tell me about Left Coast. You're, are you San Diego? I'm San Diego. Well, Left Coast is in Albuquerque, which is really just kind of hop, skip, and jump from where you are. You could drive there at any rate. Sure. And uh, when is that? It is uh, in uh, mid-March. It's like March 12th, 13th, something like that. And it's about half the size of Bowser Khan, but you're going to see most of the people you would see at Bowser Khan. Uh, but you'll actually have a chance to sit down and talk to them. It won't be frantic and frenetic, and you'll have a chance actually in a pretty meaningful way to connect with uh, with your readers. I love Left Coast Crime. Well, count me in, and if okay. I get to if I could carve out 15 minutes with you, uh, all the better. Yeah, I'll buy you a beer. Oh, excellent, and I'll. And I'll, and I'll share that with you. <laughs> all right. All right. To learn more about Kent, just simply go to WilliamKentKruger.com. That's K-R-U-E-G-E-R. -E -E all this will be down in the, below the, 
the screen. And uh, once again, the book is Lightning Strike. It's a beautiful, beautiful tale. I encourage you to read it. And once again, thank you for the gift of your time, Kent. You're welcome, David. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks again, Kent. What a fantastic interview. Okay, next week we once again present two guest thriller authors. On Monday, we welcome Nicole Bart, author of Little Broken Things, whose latest book, Everything We Didn't Say, is sure to jump off the shelves if early buzz is any indication. Then on Friday, I get the honor of welcoming a new friend and fantastic debut author, Eric Bishop, whose book, The long-awaited The Body Man has been the talk of Twitter for months now. And next Friday, you're going to see why. Before I go, I want to remind you to please leave us a review wherever you podcast. After all, word of mouth is fantastic. But a few words in places like Apple Podcasts and on thethrillerzone.com goes really a far distance in helping us grow this podcast. It's people like you who help people like me live their dream of talking to writers and directors of thrillers from around the world. Uh, Last thing, if you or someone you know would like to appear on The Thriller Zone, just visit our website and leave us a note on our contact page. Okay, that does it for me this week. I'm David Temple. I'll see you next week on The Thriller Zone. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.